episode number three of the podcast. Um, Miles, how are you, sir? Tristan, I'm doing great. Great to talk to you today. Great to talk to you and um, a a moment of joy for us. We have another Seahawks um, victory to discuss. I do think, though, I should address the elephant in the room uh, before we go any further for our faithful listening audience. I'm on a business trip and I forgot my microphone and I, you know, um, confession, good for the soul, bad for the reputation. And I just, I feel like I need to, you know, get that out there for everybody. I, I screwed up everyone. I'm sorry. You know, that's, that's the bad news. The good news is a lot of people don't know about Pete's open door policy. You know, if you know the X's and O's well enough, you know, you can be up in Renton and, and doing some consulting for them. And more Seahawks fans should know about that. Well, yeah, I mean, and Pete has leaned heavily on me over the last two weeks specifically um, when it comes to the offensive game plan, which we'll dig into a little bit today, I'm sure. Um, and certainly the defense, you know, and, and being um, Spoon's personal mentor and just being right there with him. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, cat's out of the bag. You did, you you really said a lot, though, that you, you thought you could get him to mention the podcast in a press conference, and I haven't heard, I haven't heard a single thing. Yeah. I mean, Sorry to call you out person. like that on the pod. Now I feel bad, but he's, he's you know, a maybe it'll person. come on Wednesday. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I, yeah, I mean, we can, we can only hope. Um, Pete Carroll, big fan of the podcast, um, that he's certainly never, never heard of. Um, okay. So, uh, bad, bad audio aside, and it'll be fun later to listen to this and to see just, you know, what the Delta is between laptop microphone and, um, you know, just the absolute lap of luxury, um, professional rig that I usually use, um, weekend studio and week Yeah. The, the studio in the Hollywood Hills. Um, but uh, the Seahawks did indeed win this game versus the Carolina Panthers. Uh, beautiful score, 37 to 27. Um, you know, I'll just start with my first takeaway. Um, and for me, it was just right off the bat that the running game came alive. It was awesome to watch watch the guys really control the line of scrimmage. Uh, A couple of stats here, Ken Walker, 18 for 97, um, averaging 5.4. Of course, those beautiful two touchdowns. Zach Charbonnet, um, nine carries for 46, 5.1. Kind of what you would expect, I think. His long was only of 12. Um, And then I'd be remiss, although it's not exactly a run, I, I have to mention it. Uh, 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 Walker, I should say, with uh, a reception of 36. I really felt as though Kenneth Walker put his stamp on this game. It it just seemed as though this was a Ken Walker football game. He took it over, in my mind. He looked like he was kind of in control the whole time. And then this was the game for me where it just seemed as though Charbonnet was right there with him, step for step. And it was such a perfect compliment between those two. Yeah, I was thinking it I can't remember another team that's done the running back in the second round in back-to-back years. Um it feels good that they're so young and and so cost controlled yeah. as well just from the Seahawks front office perspective and I feel like that's kind of like a 
a a gift from the Russell Wilson trade? Like, do they go Charbonnet in the second round this year? Because they they use Charbonnet with their own later second round pick, and took I think Derek Hall earlier with the Broncos' second round pick this year. So it's like they just took Kenneth Walker last year. Do they go Charbonnet in the second round if they just have their own second round pick? Probably not. But I feel like they really kind of took a, a secondary benefit from that Wilson trade to get both of these two guys. And yeah, they made a huge difference. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It seems like a luxury pick to me um, that you're able to take that running back and you can see the impact that it has. I mean, when you have the opportunity to give the other running back a little bit of a break and then, you know, you have that one, two punch, it, you know, this is nothing crazy or new for, for anyone, but the idea that you have, complementary pieces in the backfield that have a very different running style. Um, I mean, and listen, we will lose every single one of our listeners if we don't mention that hit by Zach Charbonnet as he's going into the end zone or right before um, he goes around the corner and um, throws the defender into the stands is what it looks like from the TV copy. I don't know. Um, Miles, did you get a chance to hear um, Steve Rabel, uh, the play-by-play for radio, um, hear his his call of that play when Zach Charbonnet just throws that defender? Yes, I, I did hear it. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. It's incredible. I mean, you hear... Um, you hear Steve and Dave like simultaneously just go, oh, <laughs> just the, like, like you don't see hits like that ever. And the fact that he just like laid the hammer down was, yeah, I love that. I know. He's kind of a smaller back too. You know, this wasn't, uh, he's not Marshawn out there. Yeah, no, the, the Terminator um, hit it. So yeah, that's, that's my first takeaway. Uh, yeah, I was talking about the success rate last time how I felt like Walker even though he wasn't getting huge chunks of yards against the Lions that he was helping keep the chains moving getting big chunks on first and second down and then converting third and fourth downs I I felt the same thing watching the game that even though he did have those bigger runs this time that they were both helping things uh yeah keep moving on schedule so Walker I think I think last week his success rate was so for the season it's at 55.3% that he's kind of getting those chunks depending on the downs, which is, um, I think that was exactly the same number that it was last week, but other running backs around the league kind of fell down. So he's moved oh. up to sixth among running backs in the league with that 55.3% number. And Charbonnet, he doesn't have enough carries to totally qualify, but he's at 62.5. So they're both, yeah, just just keeping things moving. And I think that's the... I think it's the primary strength of the Seahawks team that they just keep these drives moving and there's not even though there's nothing there's rarely something explosive about it they do just keep on moving and it's they're one of the highest scoring teams in the NFL at this point you know doing that just staying staying positive very few mistakes made on offense and drives don't stall that's I think it's a really interesting point, um, even just when you think about <clears throat> so a, a conversation we were having right before we started recording was this idea that you had mentioned it, right? That DK Metcalf, it wasn't like it was a crazy game for DK. And yet um, 
and, and yet like DK had a massive impact on the game, right? So DK's long, I'm looking at his numbers right now. His long was 34 yards, um, but his average was 18. He had six for 112, which is obviously great numbers. I mean, that's awesome for any wide it's receiver. It's a huge game, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a great game, but it wasn't one of those DK games where it's like, oh man, he's completely taken over. It was almost as though in the medium zone of of the passing game that that you know fifteen to to twenty range or whatever he was really dominating in that zone, which it, it doesn't do justice to say that DK was keeping the sticks moving. I don't think that's right, but he was like keeping the sticks moving plus plus. And I think to your point, when you talk about staying on schedule as an offense. If you're talking about um, K9, if you're talking about Charbonnet, if you're talking about DK or Noah Fant or, or Colby for that matter, or even Tyler or Jackson, they all just kind of kept the ball moving and matriculating down the field, um, which, I mean, it's a winning version of football, right? Yeah, I feel like all the things that I've been saying about the Seahawks offense, it's it's things we've said that are said in football to like damn with faint praise about like managing the game or keeping the sticks moving, but it's like it, that's how you win the game, you know? So uh, it's not that I'm not impressed by it. I am impressed by it because the Seahawks, they score on a huge percentage of their drives. They have the one turnover across three games, the one Geno interception. Uh, and you just win that way. Like they're, they're top five in the league in points per game even with the one dud in week one, you know, this, it's not, there's a lot of teams that can't do this and they would, you know, a lot of teams that can't do this, you know, if this was a Tennessee Titans podcast right now, you know, or, you know, never mind, or, or 10 others, you know, it, it would be, you'd, you'd be so frustrated and you'd want the sticks to just keep on moving. And yeah, when they do, it's, it's a beautiful thing and it's not uh 70 points like the dolphins, but um. Yeah, it, it's a. It feels like a very comfortable offense that you trust. You feel confident. Yeah, I mean, yeah. What What would have you said? I mean, it's funny as you said that you're a big basketball fan historically, and as you said that, the guy that came to my mind is the big fundamental, like like the idea, like the the least sexy basketball player of all time, and yet like. You you do your job in a perfect way, and I'm sure there was plenty of Spurs fans over the years. It's like, well, can he just be a little more flashy or do a little bit more, whatever? Um, not to put words in any Spurs fans' mouths because I don't actually know that's how anyone ever felt about one of the greatest basketball players of all time. But the idea that it's like, no, there's a huge value to just being steady and just getting it done. And yeah, to your point, how many teams around the league this week were in the anguish of we could not convert on third down and the Seahawks did that in spades. I mean, they really had a lot of success in just being fundamentally sound this week, which it was clear and obvious that it, it really showed. Yeah. So I, I'm impressed. I've, I am impressed by the Seahawks offense, even though, yeah, all the things, I'm saying are are typically uninspiring things, but it's like, yeah, you do want Gino to manage the game, and and he does because there's a lot of teams with fans who are you know screaming at their quarterbacks right now because they keep on making you know crazy mistakes and 
uh, yeah, Gino doesn't do that. It's always the it's always the right play. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, no turnovers, right? So far, so I mean, you're looking at a team that. Um, I guess Gino did have an interception, didn't he? Um, but but still, like the whole on the season has been, you know, doing the right things, not turning the ball over, taking care of the football. Um, and that's you know, that's Pete Carroll winning football. Obviously, is just you know doing doing all the right things. I think that's pretty pretty awesome. We're talking about the running game, which brings us to uh, a classic segment on the world's classic. only Seahawks podcast. Uh, the Belichick strategy moment of the game. I'm continuing to sponsor the segment out of my own pocket. It is continuing to lead to my financial ruin, but I can't stop because I was watching the game and a moment occurred and I said, this is the Belichick strategy moment of the game. Um, even though the game ended up, it was it was an interesting game because it, t- it did take all four quarters for the better team to reveal itself. It is funny. The Panthers were up at halftime. But the game felt like a very comfortable Seahawks win to the point that the Panthers' last touchdown was the weird like backdoor cover. Really, this felt like a 37-20 to game, even though the final score was 37-27. But it really took until the third and fourth quarter. And here's when it happened. Fourth quarter, 12 minutes to go. The Seahawks were only up 22-20 to with 12 minutes to go in the fourth quarter, which feels wrong because this feels this felt like such a dominant game. But like there was a... It felt like Andy Dalton was getting garbage time yards for a really long time. But 12 minutes to go. It's still only a two-point game. Seahawks are getting down to the red zone. And I noticed that they ran virtually the same running play two times in a row to get the touchdown. It was a play where they had fanted Parkinson in. And the whole offensive line kind of blocked to the left. And the tight ends and the running back went to the right. The first one, the important thing is, is, the first time it worked, Charbonnet got a 10-yard run, and that was the play where the linebacker, Deion Jones, just kind of lost his temper, picked him up, body slammed him, and got the additional 15 yards. It was a bit of a kerfuffle. And I wonder if the Seahawks and Shane Waldron used that distracting moment of the penalty, you know, people losing their composure, regaining it. They come back. I think they were on the seven-yard line, uh, run virtually the exact same play. Uh, for Kenneth Walker, and and he got the touchdown, and it, it I like that because it was like, you know, they they didn't stop it the first time. You don't need to to reinvent the wheel, and so I really like that they noticed the play worked. Even and a ten yard run, it's a really successful run, even though it's not a, a you know a very flashy run, and went right back to it. The other moment that I was wondering about was. We should mention the Panthers got eight false start penalties, just really struggling with the crowd noise. And to me, I feel like that was on the Panthers coaching staff. It felt like they were really ill-prepared. They had those eight false start penalties. There was another illegal procedure penalty where they snapped the ball before guys were set. So really kind of nine penalties dealing with the noise. To me, that felt like a coaching thing. Of like They, they didn't come prepared and, and all, it seemed like most of the penalties were coming when Dalton was trying to change the play at the line he's used to doing that as a veteran quarterback but it felt like they didn't have a way as a team of doing that in a in a coordinated way to get like the snap off at, at the right time with everybody any thoughts about yeah, that yeah no <clears throat> yeah no I I totally agree I mean it's 
it's crazy. It, it was a, it was, it felt like a throwback game um, for, as a Seahawks fan to watch. It, it felt like one of those games that I had seen. So the game that will, I think a lot of people will think about when they see eight false starts is um, I believe it was 2005 against the giants. There was 11 false starts um, against in that game. And that was the craziest false start football game I've ever seen in my entire life where it's like, this doesn't make any sense. How <laughs> I, I just remember feeling so bad for the giants almost because it was, it was such a ridiculous game um, of, of 12th man dominance. And to see that again, this felt, it reminded me of the way that, that I was about to say quest field. And then I was about to say century link it's the way that Lumen Field is supposed to be, um, which is dominant and crazy and ferocious. And, you know, if I'm if I'm sending someone up there who's not a Seahawks fan, I'm almost apologetic, like, all right, well, hey, have fun. But, you know, just don't be too offended by the way you're treated while you're in that stadium. You know, almost a, a hostile territory type vibe. Um, hopefully in a, in a way that is semi nice cause we're still Seattle for goodness sake. And, you know, we, we don't want to be complete jerks, but, um, but man, like it, it, it felt good. It, 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 it felt dominant again. And, and that, you know, that just brings back a lot of memories and, you know, Pete mentioned it on, on one of the interviews I listened to, you know, maybe that was a little bit of all of the old, um, Legion of Boom was there and maybe the, the crowd wanted to make sure that they could, you know, we still heard them. But I don't think that's it. I really, I, I don't think Pete's right there. I, I, as a fan, when you're in that stadium and you start feeling the energy that like they're jumping off sides, there was a moment where I believe it's their right tackle jumped off sides twice um, in a row. And I mean, I, I remember, I can think about be, moments when I'm the fan in that stadium it's like you're a shark when there's blood in the water, you just want to attack. And like the decibels get even louder because you get so excited. Um, it's, it's incredible. It, it was, it made me really happy, honestly, just as a Seahawks fan, it, it made me really happy to see the crowd make such a big time impact. And, and it, it's kind of just a reminder of, of how fun that crowd is and how powerful of a tool that can be the, the 12th man. It's a, since this does happen in Seattle and has happened over many years, it is so it feels bizarre to me actually that this doesn't happen for every domed team all the time. Like should if there's like, you know, Atlanta, New Orleans, Dallas is mostly domed like what if Seattle was domed? I mean, wouldn't that yeah. make you know, that that makes yeah, a big and, difference, and- right? Yeah, the days of the kingdom were pretty crazy. I mean, it, it was pretty doggone loud in the kingdom as well back in the day. Um, but yeah, they there's something about the Seattle fan that really takes pride in it. And I think once a fan base, similar to the Chiefs, I think once a fan base gets a taste for the fact that they can affect a game, I think that changes everything. Um, but I think it's also you know related to the fact that Seattle has always been very vocal about giving the fans credit, you know, and I think that helps. I think it helps if, if you know, hey, we can affect a game and you're giving that that fan base credit constantly and feeding into it. Um, I think it really helps feed the beast. So, no, it's it's a fun it's a fun takeaway. I, I like that one a lot. 
Um, so, so my next takeaway was, um, was Jaron Reed. I thought that Jaron Reed, I think he had the best game I've ever seen Jaron Reed play. I mean, it, it, it seemed as though whether he was making the sack or not, Jaron Reed was controlling the interior of the line. Like I've never seen him control it. Um, and I, I, my understanding is they were starting with some backups at guard. So, you know, it's not, you can't take this as we were, you know, destroying world beaters or anything like that, but it was so awesome to see Jaron just really be in control of the inside of that run game and, and the, the, the defense as well, the pass defense, I mean to say, um, it seemed as though there was no place for Andy Dalton to go. You know, I mean, we were coming on either side of him with the, the edge rushers and, and Jaron was collapsing the middle um, seeing his impact, I think, you know, I think I echo the sentiment of many Seahawks fans when I say the one thing I wanted to see this year was dominance in the middle of the field and to see that we can stop the run and, and affect the passer in the interior of the defensive line. Um, and to see Jaron kind of come alive like that was was pretty awesome. We should say it- – it wasn't just the pass rushing, but they were so dominant stopping the run early that you really felt Carolina, the offensive coordinator, and everybody just say, we're not doing this anymore. And uh, even though Andy Dalton ended up with, I think, about 360 yards, that's a bad number, but it it felt like a lot of them were very meaningless and, and compiled at the end, and it, it wasn't that... Uh, because and the Seahawks just they they played the run so well at the beginning they knew that pass was coming in the second half and despite all those yards n- very little of the passing w- felt very dangerous. It's it's a great point. They they had to abandon the run, which um, I've been rooting for the Hawks plenty of times over the years when we've been in that situation and when it's a. It is an absolutely crushing feeling when you know you can't run the football anymore because I, I feel as though you feel as though your your chances of winning just instantly drop by twenty percent or something like that as you realize we are going to be one dimensional and we can still win but it's going to be way way harder um, and you know a, a, another thing that kind of occurred to me as you mentioned that kind of stopping the run and just interior um, dominance in general, and and maybe something that I'll keep coming back to throughout the course of this podcast, um, at least for this year, is um, the the percentage of snaps played by different um, interior defensive linemen, which is probably one of the dorkiest um, uh, football things you could ever look at. Um, But it's the way that my brain works. And so bear with me here um cam young at nose tackle played 21 snaps on defense for 27 percent um i think that's a significant number it's it's a number i'm going to keep looking at every single week um because i think that the the impact of having not only jaron reed which apparently he was fighting through a a fairly significant groin injury throughout this process and this just said i'm going to do it anyway and, you know, Draymond Jones had to leave with, um, you know, apparently a tightening hip. The fact that that Cam Young was able to come in, fill the gap. Um, Miles Adams um, made an impact. Uh, actually, the exact same staff count as Jared, uh, as uh, Cameron Young, I mean, um, at 27 percent. 
Uh, Mario Edwards, 53%. So the fact that they were able to really um, spread out those snaps, you know, uh, across a lot of different dudes. And, um, I, you know, again, call me a dork, but I'm going to continue to look at uh, Cam Young and Derek Hall, these young defensive linemen. I want to see how they continue to progress throughout the season because I, I think that depth along the defensive line, there goes the season. We're not going to survive unless we have a lot of good depth. Um, so seeing those guys have big impacts was huge to me. I won't call you a dork. I'll call you a, a connoisseur. I think that's a connoisseur's take. Uh, but I do remember that the the Super Bowl era teams, 2013-2014, it felt like they had eight starters on the D-line. Like they just had guys keep on coming and uh, players like Michael Bennett would have such a huge impact with very few snaps played, really. Um, kind of like today. None of the D-linemen above um, 53% snaps played. All right, what do we have next on the old run sheet? I'm looking at this thing right now, and I'm seeing all capital letters. I'm seeing all capital letters on this They're one. flashing. They're flashing. There probably should be exclamation points. Many, many, many that just are in trail of these very simple four consecutive letters. More. Bobo. It was a beautiful touchdown. I couldn't believe he got the feed in, especially that was only his second career catch. And it was, it was an amazing, amazing catch for that touchdown. Not, a, not an easy one at all. I was also happy to see it because it's become clear his, his run blocking is so good that I was going, Hey, if I'm noticing that they're, they're bringing him into run block here. If I can notice this, they're definitely noticing it for the Panthers' D coordinator. Oh, Bobo's in. That means a run play to kind of walk off the game with a, a toe-tap touchdown like that. I thought was really good just for next week. I'm like, okay, just because Bobo's in doesn't necess- for the Giants. Like, doesn't necessarily mean it's a run. They, they can pass to this guy as well. Absolutely. No, I, I think he's shown um, a great feel in the passing attack. And, and I say that based off of everything I heard during training camp and um, uh, mini camp for that matter. Uh, and even back to Chip Kelly times, I've heard Pete say a couple of times that Chip has said that he's maybe the best practice wide receiver they've ever had, that he really shows up to those practices. And, um, you know, in some ways, I suppose that could be a backhanded compliment, but in this case, I'd like to think that it's um, it's really a testament to his work ethic and the fact that he's willing to continue to, um, to, to put in really good reps, whether it's the practice field or not. Um, and I will say that amongst professionals, putting in effort and reps usually has a great effect and, and it, it makes an impact on the people you're playing with. And I, it seems clear that the people that he's playing with, the dudes he's playing with out there really love him and respect the way he's playing the game. So, um, yeah, for me, it's a resounding more Bobo. Um, we're all, we're all in for it. We're all here for it. Um, it's fun. It's a great story. Um, you know, and he might not be the fastest guy, but you know, Cooper cup isn't either. So, you know, let's just go and enjoy it. 
Um, and, and frankly, we've seen a lot of good wide receivers in the NFL thrive for many years after they are still not running their four fours or whatever it is. So, um, yeah, I, I think that there's a lot to be said for Jake Bobo and I'm happy for him. And yeah, let's, let's, let's just keep getting more and more of it in the proper order of more DK, more Tyler, uh, more JSN and then more Bobo, um, in that order. But yeah, we're, we're all in. All right. At the start of the year, I figured that the Seahawks would be somewhere between the 50th, the 15th, no, what, the 50th best, the 15th best team in the NFL and the 20th. But a very fun, in a very fun way. But uh, something about this victory, I think in a lot of people, the Seahawks, for a lot of people, the Seahawks snuck into bottom 10 or like the 10 spot in people's power rankings. And it really made me realize that I think in the next few weeks, what could happen here with a strong few weeks is the Seahawks could really move into a really strong place in the second tier of Super Bowl contenders. So I'm going to name a few teams, and I think we can both agree that these few teams are the real Super Bowl contenders that are better than the Seahawks right now. The Eagles. Yeah. Yep. The Dolphins, the 49ers, the Cowboys, and the Chiefs, and probably the Bills. But then there's kind of a tier that's kind of forming below that that I, I think the Seahawks are part of, including the Ravens, the Browns, and the Lions. And that's so that was six teams that are like the real Super Bowl contenders Eagles, Dolphins, 49ers, Cowboys, Chiefs, Bills. And then Below that, you know, Ravens, Browns, Lions, the Seahawks are going to, the Seahawks beat the Lions. They are going to get a chance to play uh, the Ravens and the Browns in the next uh, five or six weeks here. Uh, it could be the case that that they're really right in the mix uh, for that, that second tier of teams and is really solidly in the playoffs instead of trying to creep into it. Uh, like last year, I was, uh, yeah, I think this game really changed it's so funny that Rams loss was so devastating, but following the next two games, it there is a big feeling that that was just the anomaly or whatever. Or how about this? So the Falcons are two and one, right? And they lost to the Lions 20 to six on Sunday. In a way, you could say like that was their loss to the Rams. Like that was really bad. <laughs> you know, just like the Seahawks, like they biffed one the same way that the Seahawks biffed one week one, but to me, I feel like it's pretty clear that the Seahawks are better than the Falcons, even though everything's kind of looking just about level. Like, uh, yeah. So I was, I was just really surprised that I, I think that that's the Seahawks' aspiration, which is I think way, way better than it, it's more than you could have hoped for at the start of the year, and certainly after that week one loss to turn it around the next two weeks. That that yeah, I think consensus power rankings they're they're at about 10th right now yeah and they're a young team right so you know they're as always with Pete Carroll a developmental team and so they're clearly developing every single week and getting better and better um so yeah it's it's exciting to see what this team can um continue to grow into and as we see guys like Cam Young and Derek Hall and Zach Charbonnet and Witherspoon um, 
all progress and become better and better in Jackson Smith and Jigba. I mean, if you think about it, the upside of this team is kind of ridiculous. So yeah, no, I love that. All right. So with the the Seahawks playing the Carolina Panthers this week, that was a special matchup to me because uh, my favorite NFL podcast to listen to um, is a Carolina Panthers podcast, believe it or not. I have no special affiliation or or fandom with the Panthers, but for the last four years, I've listened to two of their former players, uh, Pro Bowl offensive tackle Jordan Gross and Jake DeLome. They do a little 20 to 25 minute weekly podcast every Thursday morning, kind of recapping the Panthers week. It's just, it's my favorite NFL podcast. These guys are, uh, well, they've both returned back to their hometowns from Carolina. Jordan Gross is in the middle of uh, Idaho. He's coaching his former hometown team. You hear a lot about that team on the, on the podcast and uh yeah i really recommend it it's great i am it's one i need to listen to you you've mentioned that before um so we don't have much time left on the on the cast what's your pete nugget my pete nugget is he was talking about at his press conferences he's talking about jaron reed chasing screen passes he's talking about special teams tackles i couldn't believe the level of analysis he took in overnight taken in the film. He seemed to know what every single player did. I don't know how he found the time to do it. Yeah, he's he's insane in that way. My mine is real fast. I he compared Weatherspoon's um style to Lofa Tatupu, who's one of my all-time favorites. Um and and to see that I think is is massively high praise. So a really cool game. Um and uh you know, just excited to to see this team continue. Um, quickly, do you have any uh, any thoughts on next week? Next week's weird. The Giants have played one good half and five bad halves. Completely puzzling team. Yeah, um, it's it seems like they're a team look trying to find themselves. I. I I think that we're a developmental team, so I'm not going to to get too prideful or say that this one's in the bag ever this season. I think that there's a lot of work the Seahawks will have to do. Um, but yeah, looking at this team, I think that we we have a great opportunity. I'll say this. I, look, I'll use a Pete. I will use a Pete Carroll term. This is a championship opportunity. So let's let's be focused and and get another one. You know, for the boys, but. Um, no, you know what? I, I, it was a great week and, um, I'm happy it's fall. I'm enjoying football this season, Miles. And it feels better in the fall. Feels better in the fall. All right, brother. Until next week. Adios.